It's been said uh, that someone once asked the, the, the great theologian, uh, St. Augustine, uh, this question. St. Augustine, what, what are the three greatest virtues for the Christian? What are the three greatest virtues for the Christian? And, and legend tells us that, that Augustine basically answered that. The three greatest virtues for the Christian are humility, humility, humility. Right? Humility. It's not hard to see the significance and need for humility as we think about it, and, and especially even in, in our context today, uh, we think about just all the, the things that we've walked through and seen in this past year, and the tendency for us to, to argue with one another over politics and masks and pandemics and all sorts of different things, uh, just a casual stroll probably down your social media feed quickly uh, brings to the forefront the need for humility in in all of us. And and we're not just talking about people out there in the world around us, but we're also talking about us as as believers, as Christians. We need need humility. Our our posts and tweets sometimes are the greatest illustrations of the need for humility. Christians who are so confident in our opinions and our declarations of what is and what is not uh, Christians so confident in the need to jump in and correct somebody else for how wrong they are. Meanwhile, the collective pride and self-righteousness of, of us all just keeps dividing and tearing one another down. We could really use more humility. More humility. In Jonah chapter 4, we get to look and listen in as God tries to teach a very prideful man a lesson in humility. Uh, but the book of Jonah ends in a very surprising way. Right? It doesn't resolve itself. You know, it, it, it leaves us with a cliffhanger, even worse than like the ending to the last season of Stranger Things. You guys remember that show? The cliffhanger that they left us on that we're still waiting like, you know, six years to see like what happens next. Uh, those kids are going to be like 30 by the time they finish that show and resolve whatever happened there. And some of you are like, I don't even remember it. It was so long ago. Uh, but Jonah, it, it, the, the cliffhanger in Jonah is worse because there's no chapter five coming even five years later. Uh, it just leaves us wondering, what, what did Jonah do? How did Jonah respond to God's question? But the thing about this cliffhanger is that it, it's, it, it is intentional. It is meant to help us hold up a mirror to ourselves and, and consider for ourselves, how will we respond to God? How will we respond to his question of us? After all, the real point of the cliffhanger ending here in the book of Jonah is that we are Jonah too. We are Jonah too. When God exposes to us our sinful pride, our self-righteousness, and as he patiently pursues us with patience and compassion, we are invited to consider how will we respond to this lesson in humility as we consider the deep mystery of God's mercy to us. That's the lens that we need to be looking through as we consider our text, uh, Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. I invite you to, to turn there in your Bibles or on your app, and let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Jonah 4, verses 1 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country, that 
That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? And Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When, when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're, we're grateful uh, for this time to gather together, and we pray that you would give us ears to hear what you have to say to us in your word today, that you would help us to look into that mirror you're holding before our faces and see our own self-righteousness, our own tendency to worship idols, other gods in place of you. But God, help us to also see your mercy for us to see your grace towards us in a way that grips our hearts, to share your compassion for others, to grow in humility that brings you glory and brings us much joy. Lord, have your way with us today, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. You may have a seat. Right, This is a surprise ending to the book of Jonah. Uh, probably one of, if not the most surprising endings of any book of the Bible. It's definitely not the ending that we expect uh, after we've seen the first three chapters. In fact, many people don't even know the real ending of the story of Jonah. They just assume, okay, he goes and everybody preaches, they repent, the end, right? That's, that's the end of the story. But, but let's recap just one last time what we've seen through the first three chapters and, and try to make sense of this shocking ending. In chapter one, God comes to Jonah. He calls Jonah. He says, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach my message to that city. Uh, Jonah hears God's word. He runs from God, yet God pursues Jonah Jonah finds himself in the midst of a, a deadly storm at sea, then fatalistically sort of uh, just has himself thrown into the sea to calm the storm, only to get swallowed by a great fish. Chapter 2, Jonah it calls out to God from the belly of that great fish. He prays to God from the very bottom of the sea. And Jonah encounters God's grace as he remembers who God is and what God has done to, to make it possible for his people to know him and to worship him. And Jonah commits himself there in the belly of the fish, at the bottom of the sea, to follow God, saying in, in chapter 2, verse 9, salvation belongs to the Lord. 
God then speaks to the fish, and the fish vomits Jonah out on dry land. In chapter 3, God comes to Jonah the second time and calls him to go to Nineveh to preach his message to the city. And this time Jonah goes, he sort of half-heartedly does what God commands. You know, we're told Nineveh's three days wide. Jonah just goes a day into the city. He preaches a five-word sermon in the original Hebrew, uh, which is all about just God's wrath and judgment, and then he, he scoots out of there. Uh, and, and the most amazing thing happens, though. Even with that half-hearted effort, immediately the people of Nineveh repent and believe God. And we see the entire city turning from their evil and in, in violence and their injustice, turning from their sin and putting their faith in God, and God relents. He does not bring the disaster that he said he would bring upon the city. And after all that, <clears throat> we might expect the book of Jonah to just have an ending with a chapter 3, verse 11, that says something like, you know, and then Jonah returned to his own land, rejoicing, praising God for all that he had done. But that's not the ending of the book of Jonah. Uh, that's not the ending we get. Instead, we get Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Later, Jonah says he's angry enough to die. Why? Why, why, why is this? Does, does this make sense? Right? Think about it. Do, do actors get angry when they finally land a leading role in a Broadway play? Do they get angry at that? Do uh, minor league baseball players get angry when they get promoted to the majors and make their starting debut at Yankee Stadium? Well, then why would a preacher get exceedingly angry when as a result of his preaching, an entire city turns from its sin to faith in the living God? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. Why this ending? What's the point of the, the cliffhanger unanswered question uh, in verse 11? I believe it is because God is intending for us to see that, that we are like Jonah. We're like Jonah. That, that like Jonah, we are in desperate need of humility. And, 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 and the best way to grow in humility is to wrestle with the wonder of the mystery of God's mercy. If we're going to grow in humility, we have to encounter and begin to understand the problem of self-righteousness, the complexity of God, and the mystery of God's mercy. First, you need to understand the problem of self-righteousness. Here in chapter 4, we are finally clearly told why it is that Jonah rebelled in the first place, why he ran from God for Tarshish in the first place. It wasn't that he was fearful of failure and rejection. And a lot of times we're, we're scared to share our faith with others because we're fearful that, that it, it, it won't work, right? That, that God won't save them, that they'll just hate us and they'll reject us. That's not the reason Jonah ran. Uh, it wasn't that he was afraid of the violence of the Ninevites and what they might do to him, that how they might physically harm him, torture him, maim him, murder him. That, that wasn't it. It was none of those things. But Jonah tells us exactly why he ran in verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. God ran because he knows God's merciful. And he doesn't think those people deserve mercy. That's the real issue he's had all along. 
Back in Jonah 2.8, when he's in the belly of the fish and he's praying and he's encountering God's grace and he's having a real experience with God's grace. It's just like you and me. It's a continual work. It's a process. It's a long process. It's not all at once you're fully and finally redeemed. He says back there in Jonah 2.8, while praying, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. And the those that Jonah is talking about was not himself, but the Ninevites. They're the evil idolaters in in Jonah's eyes. Not himself. They're the ones who forfeit their right to experience God's mercy. So now in verse 2 of chapter 4, Jonah is essentially saying, I knew it. I knew it. I, I knew this is what you would do, God. These people are evil. They are wicked. They're horrible. They don't deserve mercy. They forfeited their right to know and experience your mercy. But you showed them mercy anyway. And I knew that you would. That's why I ran. That's why I ran. It's good that you're a God of mercy, but but this time, God, you've gone too far. So why did Jonah run? Because he loves Israel and he hates Assyria. Because he, he loves his people and he hates those evil Ninevites. Because of his bigotry, his racism, his nationalism. That's why he ran. Because of his self-righteousness. In Jonah's mind, he's not an idolater. He's better than them. He's godly. He's God's prophet. Those wicked pagan Ninevites, they're the idolaters. But what is this exposing about Jonah's own heart? About what he truly worships? About what is of supreme importance to him? Jonah's willingness to say to God that because God has shown mercy to Nineveh, it would be better for him to die. That is exposing to to Jonah, to us, to God, to everyone, what it is that that Jonah feels is of ultimate importance. What is his ultimate idol there? It exposes that Jonah feels that he has lost something that is of supreme value, his main source of joy and purpose and love in life. Jonah had a relationship with God, yes, but, but he is exposing here that something had replaced God as the main source of joy and purpose and love. His anger and his death wish is showing that he's willing to throw God away if he can't have that thing. If he can't have this other thing that has replaced God as being of supreme importance to him. If you find yourself saying something along these lines... I won't serve you, God, if you don't give me fill in the blank. I won't serve you if you don't give me this. Then the truth is, whatever fills in the blank for you has replaced God as your highest love, your functional God, and the thing that you actually trust and rest in. And that's what Jonah is exposing here. That's what he's saying here. What was Jonah's actual God? What was the idol that he was worshiping? While Nineveh's repentance was pleasing to God, in Jonah's eyes, it was a threat to Israel's national interest. God's will and the political fortunes of Israel seem to be diverging for Jonah. And Jonah believes in his nation, his race, and his politics more than he trusts in God to care for his people, to be sovereign over his people. Now, we shouldn't be too quick to point at Jonah and just paint him as this idiot 
Right? How, Jonah, how, how foolish, how stupid of you, Jonah. How could you do that? If we were in his shoes, we would likely do the same thing, and many of us do. Anyone who cares for their country would feel a little anxious with Hitler and his Nazi forces at your doorstep or with ISIS at your doorstep. And, and that's a pretty fair comparison to Assyria. I mean, this was the cruelest, most violent empire in the known world of the day, inventing ways to, to just horrify and torture and kill people brutally. It was a terrorist state. Jonah's anxiety about them is, is more than fair. It's more than fair. But the problem is that unlike so many of the, the Psalms that we read, Jonah didn't turn toward God with his anxiety, trusting in God, even if that meant suffering in exile. Instead for Jonah, if he had to choose between the security of Israel and loyalty to God, it was an easy choice. See you, see you Lord. Peace out. I'm, I'm going the other way. This, this is going beyond a healthy patriotism. Right? There's a healthy love of your country. A healthy love of your country. But this is going beyond that to idolizing it. As Tim Keller explains, he says, While love of country and your people is a good thing, like any other love, it can become inordinate. If love for your country's interests leads you to exploit people, or in this case, to root for an entire class of people to be spiritually lost, then you love your nation more than God. That is idolatry by any definition. Jonah throws his tantrum, and then he goes outside the city to sit, waiting to see maybe, just maybe, God will still just smoke them, annihilate them, bring destruction. His heart is idolatrous. He's plagued with self-righteousness, and he can't even see it. But it's so easy, friends, for you and I to be just like him. To be just like him. Care more about your own personal interests and your own security than for the good and salvation of other races and nations. Then you are sinning just like Jonah. Value the economic and military flourishing of your country over the furthering of Christ's kingdom in the world, then you are sinning just like Jonah. If, you identif if your identity is more rooted in your race and your nationality and your politics than it is in being a sinner saved by grace, now a child of God, then you are sinning just like Jonah. As Keller goes on to say, Jonah's rightful love for his country and people had become inordinate, too great, rivaling God. Rightful racial pride can become racism. Rightful national pride and patriotism can become imperialism. And there is a real danger of idolatry. It's so easy to take a good thing and then turn those good things into ultimate things that we live for, that we worship, that we seek to find an identity in, and then we seek to justify ourselves through Late novelist David Foster Wallace once gave a commencement speech that, that very beautifully and powerfully illustrates this, the danger of idolatry and the reality that we are all constantly worshiping something all the time. And, and Wallace was not a Christian. He was not a Christian. But this is, this is what he says in that speech. He says, there is no such thing as not worshiping. 
Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power. You will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will, you will need ever more power over others to numb your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. Now, now, David Foster Wallace may not have been a believer, but he speaks truth here. And he beautifully and powerfully sums up the reality and the danger of idolatry. Idolatry is, is default settings. It's unconscious. John Calvin said our, our hearts are like idol-making factories. They're just constantly producing something new to worship all the time. And we, we cannot stop worshiping. We, we simply get to choose what to worship. But sometimes we just are, are fabricating all these idols that we just keep shifting from and shifting from. And he captures, Wallace captures the reality that whatever you live for, it actually owns you. It owns you. You're not free. You're enslaved to it. And the truth is, is that you don't really control yourself. Whatever it is that, that you live for and love the most, it controls you. It might be your career. It might be your politics. It might be your wealth or your beauty. It, it might be being a husband or being a wife or being a parent. It might be your race or your nation. Whatever you live for and love the most controls you. And how can we ever be set free? from enslavement to these idols of our hearts that, that we just fashion unconsciously for ourselves constantly. Well, it will take a work of God. It will take a work of God to free us and humble us. But in that process, we're, we're going to also come face to face with the complexity of God. And we, we get a picture in these final verses of Jonah that God is far more complex than many of us assume. As you read through the rest of the Bible, you, you see this again and again. Sometimes God blesses believers and he judges the ungodly pagans. But sometimes God blesses the ungodly pagans and he punishes believers. He's a God of love and wrath. And he's both in unpredictable ways. But how can God be both of those things at the same time? How can he be perfectly righteous and perfectly loving, perfectly merciful and gracious. How could it be all of those things at the same time? When Jonah, when Jonah is exposing the real reason why he ran from God in verse 2, he actually throws God's word back in, in God's face, and he misuses it, of course. He selectively uses part of it, but selectively leaves out part of it. He quotes from Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. And, and Jonah conveniently leaves out the last part of Exodus 34, 7 that talks about God not letting the guilty go unpunished. The context, of course, of Exodus 34 it comes right on the, the heels uh, uh, of, of Moses 
asking God, God, show me your glory. Will you let me see your glory? And God, of course, says, Moses, if I let you see the fullness of my glory, you're dead. You, you can't see it. But I tell you what, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, and I'll, I'll cover you, and I'll let my goodness, all my goodness pass you by, and you'll be able to see my back. Right? And so on the heels of that, as, as God shows his back, part of his, his goodness, his goodness passes before Moses. Moses hears God put God's goodness into verbal form in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. In other words, God is both compassionate and wrathful. He's both loving and righteous at the same time. Now, in our culture, we have no problem. Sure, God, God can be loving and just, you know, forgive sin. That's great. Like, he just overlook it. No problem. Fine. He can show mercy to anyone and never punish sin. There's no problem with that in our culture. In fact, our culture wants a God who will only affirm, who will only forgive, who will only never punish But God would not truly be good if he did not punish sin, if he simply just overlooked evil. He would not be good because a God who doesn't get angry when evil destroys the good creation that he loves, that is ultimately not a loving God at all. Right? Think about it. You you love someone, your child, a parent, your, your spouse, a friend then you must and you absolutely will get angry if something threatens to destroy them, to do damage to their life. God must punish sin because he would not be a good and perfectly righteous God if if he didn't. So why does God show mercy and, and not want people to be lost? Because he's too good in the sense of his love. He wouldn't be perfectly good if he just let everyone perish. So rather than than being these bitter rivals, his righteousness and love are are simply aspects and functions of his goodness. In that way, God is complex, right? You see God's complexity at work here with Jonah himself. Jonah goes out of the city to sit and wait and see what happens. And first God appoints a plant to come up over Jonah to provide comfort and mercy and care and kindness, to give him shade from the scorching heat and sun. He saves him from his discomfort, and Jonah's exceedingly glad for the plant. But the next day, God appoints a worm to basically kill the plant, taking away the comfort and the shade. And then the sun comes up, and then God appoints a scorching east wind that just is beating down on Jonah's head. The sun is beating down on his head to the point where he's about to faint with like heat stroke here. And again, Jonah. He's asking to die because he's suffering. And God's the one who's brought the suffering upon him. Here is the severity of God's goodness. With Jonah himself, God shows mercy and judgment. All while trying to break through Jonah's hardened heart, his self-righteous heart, God cares for Jonah. He loves Jonah. I mean, he has pursued Jonah at great lengths throughout this entire account. God is both too holy and too loving 
to either destroy Jonah or leave him as he is. Do you see that? God can be very confusing, a very confusing and complex character. And, but we shouldn't take that complexity to the extreme where we see God as this like complex collection of these different compartmentalized parts, but rather understand God is whole. He, he, he is one, right? And all of his attributes are ultimately one with one another. There's not like a love part and a, a wrath part, a, a, a you know, loving, compassionate part and a righteousness part, but rather that they have to make peace with one another. But what, what, what appears to be intention for us is actually ultimately a perfect unity in God. He's all of those things at once together. But knowing that still leaves us with a lot of questions here. How, how do we find freedom from idolatry and self-righteousness? How do we find that? How can a perfectly good and loving and righteous God still show mercy to a city full of evil and wicked sinners? How does that reconcile itself? And the answer the book of Jonah leaves us with is simply a question that points us to the mystery of God's mercy. The mystery of God's mercy. Look again at at how the book ends in, in verses 10 and 11. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Right? God points to Jonah's compassion and grief, his weeping over this plant that was here in a day and gone tomorrow. Just 24-hour plant. And Jonah is just broken over the plant. And, and God is contrasting Jonah's kind of weeping over the plant with, with God's compassion and his grief and his weeping over the city of Nineveh and these lost people and also much cattle. Right? Is that not like... Why, why the much, also much cattle? It's kind of humorous, but I think it's showing us that God cares deeply for all of his creation, for everything that he made. And he grieves over the brokenness of this sinful world. Jonah's weeping over a plant, not a city full of people, not even the cows. God wants Jonah to see his own idolatry, his own self-righteousness, and how because of it, Jonah continues to deny God's grace for himself. God wants Jonah to see God's compassion for Nineveh, and he wants Jonah to share his compassion for lost people like himself. In essence, the book of of Jonah ends with this question. Jonah, in light of all that I've shown you, should I not love this city? And should you not join me in that? That's kind of the question that God's leaving him with. And then it's over. Cliffhanger ending. What will Jonah do? How will he respond? We don't know. It doesn't tell us. Exactly. You feel like there should be another page. Does, does Jonah finally get it or does he not? Well, here's a little side note that's not really the main thrust of, of what I want to communicate to you, but I, I think it's helpful to know. I believe Jonah does get it. 
I believe he gets it. How do we have this account? Think about it. Who told this story? How do we know about Jonah's prayer in the belly of the fish? I mean, who was there with him? How do we know about Jonah's like rant here on the hillside looking over the city talking about how much he hates God's mercy? How do we have this account? Who would, who would, who would have shared that if, if not Jonah himself who shared this story? And who would ever share a story that exposes how ugly their own heart is like this? Who would dare share a, a story that exposes what a fool they were like this. Only someone who has tasted God's mercy for themselves and, and has become joyfully secure in God's love for them. That's, that's who. And so only a person who believed that they were both simultaneously sinful and yet fully, completely accepted by God would be secure enough to share, look at how I blew it. Look at what a fool I was. I believe Jonah got it and came to embrace God's heart for him and grew to share more and more of God's heart for others. That's my take. I don't think we would have this book if if that didn't happen. But nonetheless, the book ends with a question, with a cliffhanger, the mystery of God's mercy. How can a perfectly good and righteous God show mercy to wicked sinners? Because God is perfectly righteous, he can't just simply overlook sin. So how does he show mercy? The book doesn't answer the question, but it's pointing us to the answer. Here's God weeping and grieving over the city of Nineveh and asking Jonah, why aren't you grieving and weeping with me? Jonah didn't weep over the city. But Jesus, the true and better Jonah, did. He did. Jesus weeps over the city as he says in Luke Chapter 13, verse 34, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Even as Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem later, knowing that that he would suffer at the hands of the religious leaders and the, the angry mob, Jesus wept over the city. On the cross, Jesus cries out, Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus expresses the heart that Jonah did not. He doesn't ignore or overlook sin. He doesn't excuse it, nor does he harshly condemn it. He he is the weeping God of Jonah chapter 4 in the flesh. But Jesus not only wept for you, he also died for you. Jonah went outside the city hoping to see the wrath of God come to fall on that city and its sin. But Jesus went outside the city to the cross willingly to let the wrath of God fall on him in your place where he absorbed every last drop to pay for your sins in full. That's the answer. That Jesus is the answer to the unanswered question of Jonah 4. How can a perfectly righteous God show mercy to wicked sinners? Because Jesus stepped out of heaven. God took on flesh and dwelt among us. 
And he lived the sinless life we never could in our place. And then he went to the cross with great compassion, weeping over our brokenness and suffered the just penalty for all of your sins in your place. Jesus Christ satisfied both God's holiness and God's love perfectly there at his cross. And at the cross is God's justice and mercy meet. If, if Jesus Christ has died on the cross for your sins, that's how God can be perfectly righteous and infinitely just because all sin was punished there on him, with him. And it's how God can be infinitely loving because God in the person of Christ took that punishment onto himself. You see, Moses just got a passing shadow when he asked to see God's glory. But you and I, when we look upon Jesus, when we look upon his cross, we get to behold his face. We get to see his goodness and his glory in its fullness. Jesus is the mystery of God's mercy revealed. Not only that, but the mercy of Jesus is the cure to, to sinful pride and, and self-righteousness. He's our freedom from idolatry. Because to truly look at Jesus and see all that he's accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection is to realize what a joke it is to try to build your life on anything else. To try to build a righteousness of your own? Really? Look at Jesus and what he's done for you to pay for your sin. You think you can match that by showing up to church for so many weeks in a row? Reading your Bible so many days in a row? Praying so many days in a row? Serving enough? What a joke it is to try to build a righteousness of your own when you look upon Jesus. You can never possibly attain perfection. The perfect righteousness that he freely gives you. His own righteousness that he gives to you and he clothes you in. You could never attain. Yet he gives it to you freely when you simply turn from your sin and you put your trust in him. To truly see Jesus for who he is is to see the emptiness of any idol you could try to live for. He exposes how every idol fails to deliver on the promises it makes to, to us. How they all leave you wanting. Like the Foster, David Foster Wallace quote beautifully illustrates. Yet in Christ you, you find unshakable acceptance, eternal security, certain hope, unending joy fulfilled. Jesus never fails. He never fails. He's the cure to self-righteousness and idolatry. But he goes further still. For the mercy of Jesus fuels and equips you with increasing humility and compassion for others. To truly encounter the grace of God for you in, in, in Christ is to realize that the ground at the foot of the cross is absolutely level. It's absolutely level. There's no junior varsity centers like, hey, I'm only on the JV team, but let's point. Those folks over there, they're the real centers here. They're the really messed up people. Like, I probably deserve your mercy, God, but those folks I, I'm not so sure about. No, the ground is absolutely level at the foot of the cross. It's level. There are simply sinners saved by grace. It's level. And God 
delights. He loves to display his power in weakness. He loves to take the weak things of the world, the things that, that the world would love to discard. The world loves to hate. He loves the, the, the things that, that shame the world. Like He loves to take those things and make them whole and use them to display his power made perfect in weakness. No sinner is beyond his reach. He loves to take the weak and broken and restore them for his glory and his purposes. Christ's mercy forms heart that, the hearts that no longer look down on others, that no longer demonize and mock other groups of people who don't agree with us. But rather, Christ's mercy moves hearts to weep over cities filled with lost people. He moves hearts to serve those that the world would discard. He moves hearts to love and invest relationally in people the world would assume should be our enemies. Christ's mercy moves us to, to have hearts like his. May Christ's mercy today toward us move us to be a people marked by humility, humility, humility. To share his compassion, that weep over the things that he weeps for. Who share his heart of compassion for our city and for the nations. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving sinners like us, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Help us to see your justice and mercy, your perfect righteousness and love, and help us to see how in your Son, Jesus, you reveal the fullness of your glory and the mystery of your mercy. By your Spirit, would you expose to us our tendency toward self-righteousness and idolatry and lead us to confess and repent of our own sin and cling to Jesus who provides us with the righteousness we need, with mercy and love in all their fullness. Help us, Lord, to be a people shaped by your mercy who are marked by humility and compassion. Give us your heart for our city and this world that we live in. May we love you and serve as you would love, as you have loved and served us. May we delight to share your message of mercy with a world in desperate need of, of hearing it. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.